You are listening to The Mortification of Spin, the regular broadcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name is Todd Pruitt. I am one of your hosts. I'm the pastor at Church of the Savior in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Carl Truman, actually the Reverend Dr. Carl Truman of Westminster Seminary. And um, I think we can call you, as far as your role as pastor, Carl, since you're a part-time pastor, um, then we can call you the distinguished uh, pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. What is a part-time pastor? Well, it's what Carl does. Uh, it's just part-time. He he gets all the glory of preaching, and you know, Carl, he's not that much into the other human beings. None so of the none of the glories of salary and uh, <laughs> things like that, of course. Yeah, and, uh, b- book expense, that sort of thing. I particularly like the the distinguished title because that clearly implies that I'm better than everybody else. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I and I struggle with that. I struggle with these titles because it clearly means you think you're better than me. Um, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I'm living in the Northeast, but I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm around Presbyterians, but I was raised Southern Baptist, and so I always feel like I'm a bit looked down upon. It's very hard when when somebody moves from an inferior culture to a superior <laughs> one not to not to experience what you're going through, Todd. So I would I would want to affirm you in your, what you're feeling. It's entirely natural, and and you will. Get over it. Good. Well, I love Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful suburb of Texas, and uh, it's a beautiful area. Uh, the people are a bit cranky, but otherwise. You know, that, of course, that if they divided Alaska in two, Texas would be the third largest state of the union. That's, that's wonderful to know. Uh, people are dying to get into Alaska, from what I understand. Uh, well, it, Carl, uh, what we've said about this broadcast is that it's casual conversation about things that count, which, of course, we've already been doing, right? Um, we are we are targeted. Uh, that is, mortification of spin is targeted towards a very specific market niche: um, middle-aged, balding, cranky Protestants. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and with that in mind, would you introduce our speaker? Well, yes, we have a a, a specially appropriate guest today. But first of all, you know, I'm a I'm a professor of church history, so let's let's travel back in time to the fifth century. Imagine that you're walking through the streets of Rome and there's a talented young Welsh theologian in Rome too. And while he's there, he happens to be present when a popular new book is being read and and he hears the phrase, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. He sees this as an attack on the need for Christians to be holy. And this young Welshman makes his displeasure known and thus begins a major controversy which was frankly to do incalculable damage to the church right down to the present day. That young Welshman's name, of course, was Pelagius. (laughs) And the author of the book which so upset him was Augustine. And if we're being honest, Pelagius' intervention can only be described as utterly disastrous. Thankfully, as a result of this, the Welsh as a nation wisely decided to steer clear of theology and focus on what they do best. Male voice choirs, rugby, and complaining about things. To steer clear of theology, that is, until now. Indeed, in the studio today, we are privileged to have with us the greatest Welsh theological mind since Pelagius. The Reverend Dr. Derek Thomas, uh, minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia and former distinguished professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Derek, or welcome. Uh, before we hit the theology, I'd like to clear up uh, one rumor that is doing the rounds on the internet. Honestly, don't know 
where this rumour originated. But is it true that in the early 70s, to supplement your student grant in the UK, you actually worked for a summer as a roadie for the British glam rock group Slade? <laughs> well, good morning, Carl. And uh, did, I, did I detect just a hint of jealousy in all of that? Just because, a hint? Because... You just you just want to be Welsh. So. <laughs> Do you know the words uh, to uh, "Come on, feel the noise"? Come on, feel the noise. Girls, rock your boys. We'll get wild, 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 wild. What? Oh, okay, he wasn't a roadie for slave. Then. <laughs> I think he's bluffing. I think he's bluffing. But. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, welcome, uh, Pastor, Doctor, Reverend, distinguished. Thomas. Distinguished. Now, which of course, I, I suppose you think you're better than me uh, with that. Of title. course. Well, yes, of course. I, I do have a, a, a request. Just a, I think people will enjoy hearing this. Uh, as a Welshman, uh, you actually know the language. Could you could you give us a wonderful, very lengthy? Welsh word. Llanfair pwll gwyngyll go gerach wyn drobwll llan dysilio go go goch. Excuse oh. me, I've, I've got to wipe the spittle from my <laughs> face at this point. Well, I was going to wipe the tears. It's beautiful. It's, it's like uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon saying Mesopotamia or something like that. It was wonderful. Um, or me reading the telephone book. Or <laughs> Carl Truman <laughs> reading the telephone book at Church of the Savior. This is an exquisitely beautiful town in Anglesey in North Wales, where I spent my honeymoon 37 oh. years ago. Outstanding. Mm -hmm. I, I, just one question about the Welsh, though. Is it true that you love dogs more than you love other human beings? More than the English. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but not necessarily more than other human beings. I see. Okay. Well, that's But comforting. I do love dogs. That's comforting. And yeah. especially my own. Uh, well, as you should, as you should. And now you, uh, you've lived in the southern United States, Mississippi, and now South Carolina. I mean, these two states classify as deep, classic South. Well, I no, I no longer get the same response when I, you know, when I check into a hotel in Chicago and I say I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> I, I don't get the same response as, as when I say I'm from South Carolina. But, right. But uh, yes, my, my experience of America has almost exclusively been Southern. Well, that, uh, I, I'm not from the South. I'm from Houston, Texas, which is not South nor West, but I have a soft spot in my heart for the South, particularly because the people are so much nicer there uh, than they are uh, here in the Northeast. Uh, Carl, I wouldn't expect you to know the difference, but I, I do believe, uh, Dr. Thomas, that you would probably appreciate the difference. I wanna to talk to you today about being good to people. Everywhere we go, we should look for opportunities to be a blessing. It doesn't have to be something big. You bring your coworker a cup of coffee in the morning, a small act of kindness. Or on the freeway, traffic backs up. You slow down, you let that car in in front of you. Just being good to people. I've learned if you will make somebody else's day, God will always make your own day. If you'll bring a smile to their face, God will bring a smile to your face. This is the most rewarding way to live. Not what can I get, but what can I give? I can take uh, niceness, even if it's disingenuous, but, <laughs> but I, I would prefer that to the, you know, the, the, the brash and uh, often 
uh, rude treatment that you get elsewhere. Correct. But I, I do like the South. Yes. I don't like grits, but I do like oh, the South. Well, I love grits. and uh, Of course, somebody from the, uh, the British Isles com- complaining about food seems a, a bit odd, I think. But nevertheless, I, I'm, I, I would imagine there's some place in Philadelphia that, that serves lamb entrails or something like that. Um, Fish and chips. Oh, okay. Well. Uh, and warm beer. Yeah, mm. that's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carl, what do we what do we want to do uh, this morning with uh, with Derek Thomas? Well, I want to ask Derek about preaching. If there's one thing that I associate the name of Derek Thomas with, other than his unfortunate Welshness, it has to be preaching. Derek did his PhD on Calvin's sermons on Job, which is a fascinating project in and of itself. Derek is a very fine preacher. Uh, and a, a practitioner of the art. We're, we are recording this compliment because this is, I'm, <laughs> I'm overcome with emotion. This I is look, off air. I'm, at this I'm, point. Just, I'm just saying what Bob Brady has told me I've got to say. Uh, Derek is a, is a fine exponent of the preaching art, and I would like Derek to, well, first of all, talk a bit about Calvin's sermons on Job, why, why he chose that as his, his particular topic, and secondly, how he has seen his own preaching develop during his, his pastoral ministry, and what kind of theology of preaching does he have and think is important for the present day? Most of us think preaching is important. Many of us perhaps have not spent as much time thinking about why it is theologically important. So Derek, uh, Calvin on, on Joe, what, what led you to the topic and, and what, how did it help you in your later pastoral ministry? Uh, one day, the facsimile edition uh, of the Arthur Golding translation of the Job sermons uh, these were published in 1574. Um, uh, Golding's English tra- Elizabethan English translations and the Banner of Truth republished them uh, somewhere in the early to mid 80s. And they came through my door. I was editing a magazine at the time and uh, they came through the door for me to review. And I thought, who in the world is going to read this? And I thought, well, I'll read it. And um, somewhere in about the 16th or 17th sermon of, of 159, I came across this statement that there, there is a righteousness in God that exceeds the righteousness of the law. Uh, the, the statement of double justice, uh, that, that it's a scary moment in Calvin. It, it's a sort of nominalist strain in Calvin. And uh, I was intrigued and 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 alarmed when I read this statement and uh, had um, coffee with uh, uh, a friend of mine and um, he sort of said, you should, you know, you should do some research in this. Uh, I chose uh, Calvin on Job deliberately because my first calling was to be a pastor and a, and a preacher and I, I really wasn't that interested in just becoming an academic, and I, I never think of myself as an academic. We, we, we never Welsh. think of you as an academic, <laughs> either, Derek. If that's uh, an encouragement. Uh, so I, I embarked on this uh, on this study, and um, I think it's one of those things when you when you study Calvin and suffering and Job and uh, innocent suffering. Um, 
it's it's just one of those things that lives with you forever. And uh, I doubt there's uh, I doubt there's a sermon, at least two in three sermons, that I I don't think about that issue, and it sort of comes in somewhere, uh, either in preaching or in pastoral counseling. And um, I, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say that I think you can see the the whole of Calvin's theology emerging in in these 159 sermons. And they're they're Calvin at his uh, at, at the peak of his preaching in 1554, 55, uh, and uh, they were, were midweek sermons, not Sunday sermons. Uh, the fascinating thing for me was, uh, you know, I, I read through them you know, many, many times, and uh, in French and English, and I'm searching for, you know, the illustrations. I'm searching for allusions to what's going on in Geneva. Uh, while Calvin is preaching this. And uh, one of the things that's going on uh, is the death of Civitas. And uh, I'm, I'm hunting for any reference whatsoever in these sermons uh, for, for this issue. And I, I come across this sermon, and it's, it's roughly around the date of uh, Civitas's death. And uh, there's just one sentence about trouble in the city. That's all it is. And how unlike uh, preaching today. Uh, of course, Calvin... Calvin had advantages that you and I don't have. Uh, you know, if you didn't go to church, you could be fined. Uh, if you didn't go to church for three or four weeks, you could be imprisoned overnight uh, and find a shilling, or the equivalent of a shilling, uh, which is a wonderful tool, I think, in church discipline. <laughs> well, it's still a bit like especially, that in South Carolina, isn't it? Well, I think the OPC had, had, you know, <laughs> may have something like that, but certainly you know, the ARP or the PCA don't have that. Thinking about uh, Calvin... Job and suffering. Uh, one of the thing, one of the striking things about the book of Job is that Job's suffering remains a mystery, really, to Job right to the end. If if you identify Leviathan as Satan, then there's a sense in which perhaps God lifts the curtain just at the end there and gives Job a little bit of insight into what's going on. But by and large, the Lord does not come to Job at the end in a particularly pastoral or counselling where He comes to him in the whirlwind. Uh, it's a it's a moment of judgment in some ways rather than grace. As a pastor, do you think it is it is ever legitimate or even often advisable when somebody comes to you having experienced some catastrophic suffering in their life, the loss of a child, for you to be able to say to to say to them, we just don't know why this has happened. We, we know that the Lord is sovereign, but I just can't say to you why this has happened. We, we just don't know. Is that a, a legitimate pastoral response, do you think? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I, I think that it's, um, you know, the shorter catechism, one answer is always the, is always the correct answer. It, it's not that we don't know, but all suffering is for the glory of God. It, it's that we might respond in ways that bring him glory. I think that's the better answer. But yes, I think as uh, you know, as Reformed, especially as Calvinists, uh, you know, we 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 have answers. Uh, we have answers to almost everything. Uh, we are we are assertive. Uh, we're not indifferent. Uh, we don't have a, a postmodern hermeneutic that there are all kinds of answers. There's one answer, uh, and so we we tend to want to be able to say the reason for it is X Y Z uh, or Z. And um, I, I think that uh, you know one of the things in Job is I think it's the it's the emotional high point of the book of Job is when he lays his hand on his mouth and he stops talking and and I think that 
that image, I think Paul takes it up in Romans 3, uh, that every mouth may be stopped. I, I think that's the illusion, uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's what God brings us to. Uh, it's the epitome of our creatureliness, uh, to, to, to be in awe uh, of God. And, uh, and not to have anything to say, but uh, to trust him. And I, I think that's what the book of Job is about. Whether you take, I don't think Calvin took uh, Behemoth and Leviathan as images of Satan. Uh, that's, a, that's a fairly modern interpretation. But, um, you know, whatever interpretation you take of that, uh, the, point, the point is that, that God does not answer uh, any of Job's uh, questions. And... Uh, nor is it important that Job understand why suffering comes to him in the way that it does. What is important is that he trusts that God understands. And, and, and it, is, it is, at the end of the day, I think, a book about trust, uh, about, about believing that God does what is right and fair uh, in the end, even if we can't see that or understand that. But as a minister... Yeah, I mean, even in preaching, I think, I think sometimes it is the appropriate thing to say, I, I don't know, I'm not sure what the answer to this is. There are two, three major opinions here. And, uh, and some, sometimes, I, I, I mean, I do think that it's appropriate to say, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, uh, I'm not infallible. I, I don't, I'm not omniscient. Uh, there is a genuine difficulty here. And I think for... For um, Christians to see that that y- you too sometimes uh, are are unclear about something, I think that that is a that's an important point. Now you can overdo that for sure, uh, and that's not a, an anti-scholarship uh, Welsh genetic thing that I'm saying. A touch of mysticism yeah. coming in, <laughs> uh, and certainly not Pelagian. Um, uh, but uh, yes, I, I I do think I do think that a touch of humility, uh, which is um, you know, which is what Job has to learn uh, to be humble in God's presence, and 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 not to be answered, and and having to trust God is is an issue of humility. Derek, you pastored in Ireland, correct? Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland during some difficult. Days. Mm, yeah. How does that inform your ministry to this day? How is it to pastor a people who are involved in such conflict? I assume you saw some very um, troubling things while you were pastoring in Northern Ireland. You saw, I would imagine, some suffering and had to deal with those things directly as a pastor. How do you do that in your pastoral care? How do you do that in your preaching? When you're preaching to people in Northern Ireland in the midst of some very, very uh, grave difficulties, how do you preach to those people? I buried people uh, who were killed by what we would have called terrorists, and actually Americans then called freedom fighters. It's, it's interesting uh, now that terrorism has come to the shores of the United States, uh, how how different America views terrorism. Um, e- even the great and wonderful city of Boston, uh, where where countless number of dollars came across in the 70s and 80s to support the freedom of Ireland, but actually they were supporting terrorism. 
acts of violence, bombing, very, very a parallel to what's happened this week in, in Boston. He let five people die. Then you let Dent take your place. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Where's Dent? Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Then why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. No. No, you. You complete me. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, uh, that um, a minister sees in, you know, when terrorism comes to your door uh, is an inability on the part of Christians to differentiate between um, a political ambition and, a, and a, a, a missional ambition. And so you tend to stereotype and uh, all Catholics are terrorists or all Arabs, Muslims are terrorists. Uh, and as a Christian, you want to evangelize Roman Catholics, and you want to evangelize uh, Muslims, or, or whoever, whoever, you know, whatever, whatever the, the the sides are in in the conflict. And I think that in in terrorism, you you see an inst an instinct that comes out, uh, and um, it's very difficult. You know, how how do you preach? I mean, let's bring it to this context. I mean, how do you preach uh, loving, evangelistic? Uh, concern for uh, for Muslims in your neighborhood uh, this weekend, when a curtain of suspicion now has gone up, and uh, I imagine uh, that on the news, as even as I'm talking, I imagine this is one of the issues that's being talked about on uh, CNN or Fox, and more likely on CNN than Fox, but. Uh, that that uh, that people are being uh, targeted because of their race or color or religion, uh, and as a Christian, um, how do you prevent that kind of prejudice? Uh, understandable. I, I lived through it. I, mm -hmm. I understand it. I had a I had a, a, a my, my wife's aunt could detect a Roman Catholic at uh, six miles <laughs> uh, by the way they walked or the shape of their nose or something, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, um, but you see that in the church too, and and then it becomes you know the the political ambitions uh, of a of a nation then become the the missional goal of the church, and and those are very difficult issues because you appear to be to be unpatriotic, and it's incredibly difficult for a minister to address those issues uh, in uh, in preaching. Um, w without appearing to take political sides, and, and usually the wrong side. And remember, I was a Welshman in Northern Ireland, so the default response to anything that, that I ever said uh, that was even mildly political was, you know, you're not from here, so you don't understand. And, and actually, pr probably Carl and I are both in the same position here in the United States, uh, and uh, and this is, you know, this you, you asked about terrorism, but... Um, you know, I certainly saw, uh, I, I mean, I have vivid memories of coming down on a Sunday morning to open the church door early in the morning, and there's a body lying in the, in the alleyway. He's been shot in the head. Um, bombs that went off. I mean, 
I, I remember I remember dozens of them. Uh, the, the Christian bookshop that we owned uh, in the center of the city was bombed at least three times while I was there, and 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 all of its contents destroyed. Um, so, but but you know, Christians are very resilient, and uh, and and actually. There's a there's another side, the terrorism and and violence and and just just tragedy can bring Christians together, can can unite. Uh, I think you see that in the world. I mean, you see a worldly version of that with people out in the streets and they're waving the flag and you know it's proud to be American. But Christians too, uh, and that's one of the things that suffering does. I think is is bring you together, makes you focus on what's important. Uh, and 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 the love of Christ being the most important thing of all. Final topic, uh, Derek, uh, theology of preaching. You know, preaching has been absolutely central to your life. I really appreciated your comment earlier when you said that your your scholarship was really subservient to your preaching. You were not doing it to be an academic. You were studying Calvin ultimately to make yourself a better pastor and a better preacher. Could you articulate for us your theology of preaching? Uh, preaching is making the word of God known and applied. Uh, you know, we serve a God who speaks. God, God reveals Himself. He's a God who speaks. He talks to us. He He makes Himself known, and He makes Himself known. His will is made known to us in the Scripture. So we are servants of the Scripture. And uh, uh, my principal task as a as a teaching elder, as a as a minister, is to make that scripture known, to preach it, explain it. I'm committed to uh, the lectio continua method of of preaching on the whole. Uh, I think there are occasions when it's appropriate to do a textual sermon. I preach a, a topical sermon maybe once a year, and then immediately repent. Um, but uh, I think that the standard fare uh, is, in fact, the Nehemiah 8 uh, example of, um, of, of making the sense of Scripture known contextually. And that, that means uh, preaching through books of the Bible uh, in, in the context in which they were written and, and applying that to the culture that, that you and I live in. Uh, I, have no, I have no authority particularly as a Welshman, I have no authority to stand and, and expect to be heard without um, interruption for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, what, what sheer arrogance that would be unless, unless what I'm doing is expounding Scripture, expounding God's Word. So the authority of preaching is, uh, is Scripture. Uh, and um, I, I think uh, there are other aspects. Uh, it's um, it's uh, uh, you know very important to to in, interpret scripture in its context and to make you know the bridging of the two worlds. Uh, and uh, that's um, that's the difficulty of, of preaching. I think anybody can, with a bit of intelligence, can can get to an understanding of what the scripture meant in its original context, with all the tools and commentaries and stuff that we have available today. The difficulty is um, uh, the the Lessing's ditch, getting getting across that ditch and and to where we are, and what is what is the application of that 
to to my context. Well, thanks very much for that, Derek. That's well. It's been very interesting to hear your insights on these these particular issues. And one of the things I would say, by way of conclusion, is you know, I'm a a man in my mid forties. Todd's same age as myself. We live in a world where the trendy guys, the guys who are making the running in terms of the wider world at preaching at the moment, are often guys in their thirties. Last week, I had the pleasure of hearing Kent Hughes speak about 41 years in the ministry. Today, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Derek Thomas about his years in the ministry. It is great to be able to talk with, interact with guys who've been in the ministry for many, many years and have executed that task modestly and faithfully for many, many years. So I want to express my appreciation, the appreciation of our listeners, Derek, for your uh, many years of uh, ministerial service. I think uh, we can probably all agree that the the legacy of Pelagius is <laughs> is slowly but surely being exercised from yes. the Welsh spirit. And, and I want to express like thanks Derek. for um, for Tom Jones and Catherine Zeta Jones. Oh, so please. thank you for that, Todd. I publicly call on you to repent for that comment. Uh, but I. Uh, <laughs> well, How about Humphrey Burton and Bryn Turfell? Oh well, they are among my favourite people who do what they do. But were they friends of Max Boyce? Wales defeated England In a fast and open game We sang Cumrhonra and Delilah Damn they sounded both the same We sympathise with an English friend Whose team was doomed to fail So we gave him that old bottle that once hell bitter he started singing. Um, anyway, <laughs> on, on that note, uh, this has been the Mortification of Spin, the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Please visit our website at mortificationofspin.org. And Todd and I look forward to having your company again for our next broadcast. Thanks very much. Inside.